You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Verse 13, 1 Peter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the good news, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're very thankful to be here today. We're thankful for uh, the announcement uh, that our brother Dean gave today that uh, we have uh, two new elder candidates. I pray that you would bless them and uh, that they would be installed on the day. We pray, Father, and are very thankful that we can open your word. We're thankful that we are born again to a living hope, and I pray that we would all live in light of that, uh, that we would dwell in our living hope and we would live holy lives in the fear of the Lord as we seek to love one another. Be with us now. I pray that uh, you would anoint me with the Spirit. I ask that sinners would be saved and the church built up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we dive into the text in verse 13, you'll see that the text starts with the word therefore. And so as we get to the word therefore, we learn that this text, what we're going to go over today from verses 13 to 25, is This is the implication of everything that we looked at last week. So because of everything we did last week, therefore, this is what it means. This is how you dwell in the living hope that we have. And we'll see in our first point that the implication of the new birth, the implication of our inheritance, the implication of our joyful disposition is that we are to live holy lives unto the Lord. But what Peter does is he starts with a preamble, essentially saying that this won't be easy and you need to get ready. If you're going to do this, if you're going to live, if you're going to dwell in the living hope that you have, if you are truly born again, that this is not going to be easy. You need to get ready if you're going to do this. So it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. That's what the ESV says. Literally, this is an idiom, and what the ESV and other translators have done is they've taken the English translation of that idiom, and they haven't done it word for word, they just gave us the sense of what that means. Literally, it would be gird up the loins of your mind. 
That's what it says. Gird up the loins of your mind. The picture being painted is one of a soldier or a runner taking up their cloak, tucking it into their belt so that their legs are free so that they can take off running. Gird up the loins. Get ready. That's what it's saying. And this is seen in the Bible on a few occasions. So for instance, uh, when Elijah ran from Mount Carmel after he defeated the prophets of Baal, the Bible says he gathered up his garments so that he could run. Essentially, he got ready to do a hard thing. And this is what Peter is telling us. And the translation, therefore, preparing your minds for action is a good one. We learn that this will not be easy. We need to prepare. The next thing we need to do is to prepare. And then we need to ensure we're sober-minded. And it's interesting that Matthew Henry says this in his commentary. A Christian's walk is not over as soon as he got into a state of grace. He must still hope and strive for more grace. When he has entered the straight gate, he must still walk in the narrow way and gird up the loins of his mind for that purpose. And so what we learn is as we prepare and as we prepare our minds for action, prepare or gird up the loins of our mind, once we have entered into the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and we are born again to the living hope, that doesn't mean that our job is over. In fact, the entire book of the Pilgrim's Progress, after Pilgrim enters the gate and he is essentially saved or born again, what happens? He still has a massive journey to go through. And this is Bunyan showing us that it is not an easy cakewalk in order in our Christian life. It's something we need to prepare for. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And then, as I said, it says, and being sober-minded. What does this mean? As we prepare for the things that are the implication of the living hope in which we have. This means being self-controlled. We're not to be drunk to the things of the Lord. We're to be sober-minded. In other words, we're not to be dull to the things of God. Thomas Schreiner says this in his commentary, there is a way of living that becomes dull to the realities of God. So you can live your entire life every sphere of your life as if God exists and is in control and is your sovereign king. And if you don't do that, you are not being sober-minded. This means that even the most mundane things in life, even the good things in life, even the things that you think um, have nothing to do with church, with God, these things are still under the sphere of the authority of our Lord, and we're not to be dull to the things of the Lord. In fact, we are to have every single aspect of our life under the lordship of Christ. This is what Wayne Grudem says. He says it well. We today might well consider the dangers presented by such inherently good things as career, possessions, recreation, reputation, friendship, scholarship, or authority. And these are all good things, the Grudem list, right? We need to have a career. We need to provide for our families. Possessions are a good thing. Recreation can be a good thing. Reputation can be a good thing. But if all these things drown out or make it our, the ways of the Lord dull, what we have is not being sober-minded. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is everything under Christ's lordship. And in doing so, what you do is you prepare to live a life that is holy unto the Lord. You're preparing to live in that um, living hope that we have, to dwell in the living hope that we have. 
And we do so by understanding that there is no time off from Christ's lordship. We're then given a reminder of last week's truth. And it's interesting, for every point that we'll see, what Peter does is he goes back and reminds us that we're born again to a living hope and that the grace of our Lord Jesus is the reason why all these things have to happen. Remember that the ground of all that we are looking at today is last week's sermon of living of the living hope of the new birth. And when you have someone up here preaching and they say the ground of something, all that means is the foundation, right? It's the ground, it's what we stand on. So everything that this sermon is standing on is last week's message, that we're born again to a living hope, and that we rejoice in that. So we're given a reminder of last week's truths, and he says this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're told to set our hope. And remember, God's commands, these are commands that we're looking at today, these are commands by God to us that we're to be holy, that we're to fear the Lord, and that we're to love one another. These commands and all of God's commands are always rooted in his grace. Before the Ten Commandments, what happened? The Exodus, right? God's commands are rooted in the grace of what he has given us. What is the disposition that we're to come with as we consider holiness? Well, if we look, verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14, as obedient children. And so this is actually an issue of obedience. We're commanded, as we'll see, to be holy, and therefore, we're to be as obedient children. We're to hear and we're to obey. This is our job. Peter then gives the command. In every imperative before that we've seen, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, all these imperatives are actually in light of this coming command. And what he does is he begins with what we don't want to be and then moves to what we are to do. So there's a contrast here. He says this, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So, we're not to conform to how we were before Christ. That's what it's saying. Don't conform your life. Don't make your life look like how you were before Jesus Christ took hold of your life and you were given the new birth. You were a new creation. So we see that even after conversion... Even after the new birth, we do not necessarily, necessarily lose all the desires that we had. Yes, we have a new life, but the outworking of that happens over time, and we're called to fight against the passions that are in us as our former self seeks to conform us to the world, and our new self, under the power of the Spirit, conforms us to Christ. And so what we have here in this contrast is acknowledgement that this is not easy and that we do have passions of our former self that are still within us, it's defeated, right? But they are still there and we have a choice. We can either conform to those passions or we can conform to Christ. In other words, we are to be different from the way we were before Christ. There should be a noticeable difference. So next Peter comes and he gives the opposite of conforming to your former self. He says, but, so there's the contrast, right? He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You knew nothing, but 
as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, in all your conduct. And so our holiness is because of God's holiness. If you have the new birth, if you have the living hope, if you have the inheritance from God, then the call for you today is to be holy. This is a word that we use all the time. We sing it all the time. Well, what does it mean? Well, holy means, as I'm sure you've been told before, is to be set apart. That's literally the translation of the word holy, to be set apart. But here and all throughout the Bible, it's different than just taking something and separating it from the pack. There is a definite moral emphasis to it. There's a definite moral aspect to it. And what it really means, in this context especially, is that we are separate from sin. And this is not new, as we'll see. The call to holiness has been part of the Christian walk since the beginning of time because holiness is an attribute of God. And we're called to be and to conduct our conduct as God would. But notice in what areas of life we are to be holy in. So here it says, it says, but you who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So now we see the importance of being sober-minded in all areas of life. Because we are called to be holy in everything that we do. We're called to be without or separate from sin in all that we do, in all our conduct. This isn't a call to be holy in just some aspects of your life. It's not a call to be holy just as you come on Sunday or the day before Sunday. It's not a, be, a call to be holy when you're around people that are going to notice how you act. No. This is a call to be holy in all your conduct. We are a people called to be holy if we're born again, separate from sin. I've heard the definition of holy from, I think this was D.A. Carson, uh, that said to be holy is to be godlike. It's an adjective that can describe God. God is holy. Therefore, as being holy, we are to be godlike, and we're to be that in every single aspect of life. So in your work, uh, in your play, in your family, with your friends, when life is hard, when life is good, the call is to be holy. Peter then grounds it in Scripture. So this is the proof that he gives as the New Testament authors so often do. And this is a principle that is found in all eras of the world for those who have been born of God. So he says, since it is written, so here's the proof he gives, the scriptural evidence you could say, since, as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What Peter is doing is he's quoting Leviticus 11.44. And this command to be holy has been a command since the Israelites were called to be a people. And it's no different now for the people called to be born again to a living hope. If this living hope is yours, if you are born again, if you are rejoicing in that hope, then the call for you today is to live a life of holiness, absolutely set apart from sin. It's interesting, when a man joins the army, his conduct inevitably has to change. I think this was more true in earlier times than it is now. But in fact, at least in the past, 
the army would spend considerable money and considerable resources training the men to be different than when they arrived from their civilian life. They are to act like they are men in the army. And this has been true since standing armies have been implemented. If you want to be a good soldier, you need to, be, you need to act like a good soldier in everything you do as a soldier. So for instance, if your superior gives you a command, you're to obey and execute. You're to dress in a certain way. You're to keep your bunk in a certain state. You're to polish your shoes. You're to know how to handle your rifle. You're to act in a certain way and talk in a certain way and conduct yourselves in a certain ma manner. Now this is for the area, area of soldiering. You know, they can get shore leave and they can go and act completely not like they do on the base, right? But as born-again believers, we are called not just to do this in certain times, but in all our conduct. And so as we enter the state of the new birth, everything changes. Why? Well, what this passage says is that we serve a holy father who we are called to imitate, and therefore we are to be holy ourselves as we use him as our standard of right and wrong. So this leads to the question, okay, I want to be holy, I want to be separate from sin, so where do we find our conduct? So it says here, remember, um, you shall be holy for I am holy. Um, he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So where do we find our conduct to know whether it is holy or not holy? What is the standard that we are to use to know if we are truly living holy lives? Well, in our modern day, it seems like standards have been completely thrown out the window. It's whatever is inside of you, whatever feels good, whatever makes you somewhat happy seems to be the gospel of the good life. But this couldn't be farther from the truth. Where do we find our conduct? Well, we find it in the Bible. We look at what Scripture says and we look at the imperatives of Scripture. We look at the commands. We look at the stories. We look at what God has said in his word, and our job is to conform our lives to that, not do our best to conform the word to our lives. We're to look to the moral laws we've been going through um, over the past weeks in the Ten Commandments as a foundation for how we are to act. We're to talk with mature Christians and see how in their lives the outworking has led toward a more hatred of sin in a more holy life, as it should. We should live lives that are different than our non-Christian neighbors. We should live lives that, that are, are vastly different. If we look at our non-Christian neighbor and we say to ourselves, you know what, there's absolutely no difference in how I live to how they live. Well, that might be a problem. Our job as Christians is to be people that are set apart, set apart from sin, devoted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yes, we don't look at others, and the standard isn't others, but we should see a marked difference in our conduct as people that are called to holy lives. And notice from the beginning that this is something that doesn't happen by accident. We need to prepare, we need to get ready, and we need to put the work in. This isn't something that we stumble upon. The new birth is completely a gift of God. The Lord gives us the new birth. He'll change our desires so that our desires increasingly love the things of the Lord. 
But within that, our job, the command that we are given as we're told to prepare our minds, as we're told to be sober-minded, as we're told to be holy, what is our job? Our job is to pursue that, to prepare for it, and to understand that it's not going to happen by accident. We need, as the people of God, to take it seriously and to pursue holiness. How do we do that? Well, I think the most essential thing, you could almost call it the basic training of a Christian, is to read the Bible daily. This needs to happen. Are we getting in the Word every day? Are we letting the Word conform how we live our lives? Are we saturating ourselves in the Word every single day? In our church, the main means of discipleship is a small group. And so if you have not gotten into a small group, I encourage you to do that. Get in with other believers who know you and know you intimately and are able to ask you hard questions. And do life with one another. Get in a small group. Ask yourself before you even get into situations what being a Christian looks like in various situations. So for instance, if you're in university and you, beforehand, you say, you know what, if I'm invited to go out to a party where I know every single person is going to get drunk, this is my game plan, this is what I'm going to do. If someone gives me that substance I know I shouldn't have, this is how I'm going to respond. And if you play this out in your mind beforehand, you'll have a game plan, you'll prepare yourself, and you'll be more likely to make the correct choice. But obviously we can't do this in our own power. And what do we have to do? We have to ask God to help. And so as we seek to be holy because he is holy, we need to beg the Lord for desires that are from him that are more stronger than the desires of our former passions. We have to ask God for help and pray for it. We are born again to a living hope. We are different. We are set apart. We are separate from sin and we are under the lordship of Christ. This is what it means to dwell in the living hope that we have as we are born again and as we rejoice always. We are to be holy because he is holy. But Peter goes further than just saying that we need to be holy. He continues and shows that one of the ways we are to be holy and to dwell in our living hope is to fear the Lord. And so we have Peter saying, point one, we are to be holy because he is holy. And then, now, point two, we are called to fear the Lord. We are called to fear the Lord. And again, Peter begins by giving a reason why he is about to give the command. And as I said, he's always looking at the grace of the Lord and saying, remember, I'm giving you these commands, but it's always rooted in the grace of God. And he's doing this again and again. And he says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And it's interesting how we have the theme of father and judge linked here. But this is a conditional statement. If you call him father and know him to judge rightly, so if you call him father, and if you're born again to a living hope, you call him father, yes. If you do that, if you know that he judges rightly, what is your response? Well, he says this. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So what are we told to do? 
We're told to conduct ourselves with fear, knowing we will give an account for how we live our lives. And our Father will do this. He will judge us. Conduct yourselves with fear. This is the main verb of the section. But when it says fear, what does it mean? So it says here in this verse, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. What is he talking about? Are we talking about abject terror? Be in constant terror of God so that you can't even move. Is that what Peter's saying? Well, I think it's obvious he's not. He definitely doesn't fit with the joy and boldness that a Christian is called to have. But is it merely meaning in some colloquial term that we're just to respect God? Just have a good respect of God and nothing more. And really, I think there's a sense of both, and we don't want to fall into one ditch or the other when we talk about the fear of the Lord. We don't want to be in such abject terror of our Father, though, if you're not born again to a living hope, you should be in abject terror of a holy and righteous God. But at the same time, we don't want to water down the fear of the Lord to a reverence that just makes it essentially meaningless. In other words, we don't respect God like we respect a boss. This isn't an equivalent statement. When we say the fear of the Lord, it's not, it's not just saying, I fear God like I fear my boss, or I fear God like I fear some earthly authority. This isn't what they're saying. We don't respect God like we respect an earthly authority. It's more than that. We don't respect God like we respect a king, even. It's more than that. The word fear is used because we need to understand that God is the one that can kill the body and the soul in hell. And there is an ultimate aspect of respect, but there is an aspect of awe and terror underneath that as we understand that he is holy and righteous, we understand um, who we are dealing with. In other words, and I think this is what it comes down to, we should care more about what God thinks than anyone else in the world. So if we come to him in the word and we read something and we decide that this is the truth and the Holy Spirit shows us it to be the true, then there should be nothing in the world that would scare you into going against that. This is the fear of the Lord. Thomas Schreiner says it like this, there's a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident and prevents him from doing anything foolish. So there's a little illustration. Now I've seen a lot of foolish drivers in my day. They might have been a little bit too confident. But a driver that is good, he'll understand if I right now as I'm driving 120 take my steering wheel and turn it 90 degrees as hard as I can, something very bad will happen and I don't want to do there's a fear there. But because he understands the road, there's a confidence. We are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. In other words, while we're here on this earth, on this side of eternity. And again, as I said before, this is because of the importance of the ground of all this. He shows the reason that we can do this is because of the grace of God. Look at the next verse. This is verse 18. 
knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So the reason why we can do this, the reason why we can live in fear of the Lord is because we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We are ransomed or bought or redeemed. We were bought away from something, just as the children of Israel were brought away from Egypt. What were we brought away from? Well, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And commentators seem to think that because of lines like this, Peter's probably writing to Gentiles. And what they're saying is that as we look at the ways of their forefathers, all of them were futile. Remember that one of the ways that our living hope was explained last week was through an inheritance, right? We've inherited the new birth. We've inherited, eventually, the world. Now Peter is contrasting the true inheritance with a futile inheritance. So these Gentiles were given an inheritance from their forefathers that was futile. And notice, it doesn't matter how sincere they were. People will come and say, oh, you know, but these people that don't believe in Jesus, they seem, they seem so sincere in their pursuit of God. How can that be false? They're so sincere. There's no comment on that here. It doesn't matter how they, devoted they are. I've heard people come and say, well, you know, they're just so devoted that, you know, how can what they believe lead them to hell? They're, they're, they're so devoted in it, even though they don't believe in Jesus. There's no comment on that here. It doesn't matter how popular it is. It's not a popularity contest. If it is not the way of Christ that comes from the new birth, notice what it says here, that those inherited ways, even if they come from your fathers, is futile. It's meaningless. It's going to lead to nowhere. You might think you're doing great things, but in the end it leads you straight to hell. Now, when you ransom something or redeem something, you pay for it, right? And what we learn here, and one of the reasons we're to fear the Lord, because this is what he's talking about, is the amazing price that the Lord paid in order to redeem us. We learn what he did not use. It says this, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, or silver or gold. The things that we deem as valuable will perish. They'll go away. Even the most, most valuable things that we think of. These things are not enough to redeem us from the kingdom of darkness to the king, kingdom of light. So what did ransom us? It says, but, so it's not with these things that are going to perish, silver, gold, riches. That didn't redeem us. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we are ransomed with Christ's own blood. And that is the most precious thing. And notice that it is like the Passover lamb without blemish or spot, meaning that he never sinned. One of the reasons we are to fear God is because of the price he paid to ransom us. How could we squander it? How could we live in a way that shows an indifference to the unbelievable price that was paid? How could we? Instead, we should fear doing anything that offends him. Why? Because of the absolutely unbelievable price. 
the price of the blood of the Son of God was paid on our behalf. And so one, so one of the things we should fear is to offend him in any way. He bought us with a price. Peter goes on to show that this was always the plan. Speaking of Jesus and the shedding of the blood, he says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This isn't saying that God just knew that Jesus would be needed. The word here has a sense of causality to it. This was the plan. And we'll see that in the next line where it says, but was made manifest in the last times. So before the foundation, or it means before the beginning of the world, Christ was known that his blood would be shed. And it was made to happen in the incarnation when Christ came to earth. And when it says last times here, it's not referring to the end times, it's referring to the times of Christ, not his return. And it's reiterated that we are to fear because all this happened for those that are born again. It says, for your sake. And so what we see here is that this was the plan. He then reiterates that the God we fear is the God we trust. He says, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now notice where the believers are through. I found this fascinating. It says, who through him are believers. So the believers are through him. That's Christ. It's talking about Christ. So it is through Christ that we have belief in God. Another way of saying it is, to believe in Christ is to believe in God, but also, believing comes through Christ. Christ gives us belief. And again, we look to the resurrection, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So we believe in a God that raises from the dead and glorifies Christ. And this is another nod to the deity of Christ. Christ is God. Because how else could God appropriately give Christ glory unless Christ is God himself? Glory goes to God alone. This brings us to the point of belief, where it says this, so that your faith and hope are in God. So all of this is to put our faith and our hope in God. So the God that we put our faith in and the God that we put our hope in is the God that we are told to fear. We fear, but it is a fear that leads to trust. Peter already gave this illustration of a father, and I think this is the most appropriate way to think through the fear of the Lord. A father, a good father, is one who loves his children. He loves them and will do everything to make sure they are well taken care of and provided for. But a good father is one who needs to be feared. If a child goes against the rules, then they should have a fear that there will be consequences. There should be a healthy amount of fear and love and trust. And all this is mingled together to help the house run well. And this is how it is with the family of God. We fear displeasing our father, but also love and trust him fully. It all mingles together as faith in God. And in order to dwell in the living hope of the new birth, we need to fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. So a few points of application. 
Do we fear God more than man? This is what we have to ask ourselves. Is that fear that goes down into your, your belly as you think about sharing the gospel with a coworker or a friend, does that overpower the fear of the Lord who has commanded you to share the gospel with others? Maybe it's speaking up at a certain time, saying something that it's wrong. Maybe it's doing an act that you know will and might cause problems. Maybe it's fear to say a word that you know will not have a good reaction in regards to someone else's sin. What we need to do is fear God more than man. And Do we use the fear of the Lord to keep us from sin and to pursue holiness? Remember the price that was paid in order for us to be ransomed. And every time we sin deliberately, we can go to the Lord and confess it, and he will, he will forgive us. But every time we sin, what do we do? Well, we trounce on that precious blood of Christ. We should have a fear of that. We really should. And for those of you that are not in Christ, as I said before, we do serve a righteous and holy God that will punish sinners. And you should be afraid of him in a different way than believers are. There is an abject terror to a wrathful God. And so my call to you is to join us in a fear of the Lord that lives, that leads to faith and to hope and turn to Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins. His blood was poured out on your behalf and then he rose from the dead defeating death so that we too may be raised in newness of life and my call to you is to turn to Christ. Put your faith in him and the Bible says that your sins will be forgiven. Though they are scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Turn to Jesus. We are born again to a living hope and we are to dwell in it. And as we fight our our former passions, we are to fear the Lord in order to dwell in our living hope. So we've gone over two points. We're told and called to be holy. We're called to fear the Lord. And then finally, we're called to love one another. As we dwell in the new hope, and the living hope of being born again, we are to love one another. And Peter keeps going in his commands on how to dwell in our living hope. He begins with having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now this is not saying that the obedience to the truth is what purified our souls. Peter has made it very clear earlier that this is a work of God. The word by is most often translated throughout the New Testament in. So we could say, having purified your souls in your obedience to the truth. What this is talking about is both conversion, purifying your souls, and sanctification, obedience to the truth. And he gives a reason as to why this has happened. So we've, our souls are purified, we want to be obedient to the truth. Why? For a sincere brotherly love. This is a love for other believers which is reiterated in the next line, which is the command where he says this, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The command is to love one another. Pure heart is holiness. So one of the outworkings of holiness is the love of the brethren, to love other Christians. We are to love one another. 
But we must not let the world define love. We must let God define love. The world would have us believe that love is accepting people no matter what. This is not love. In fact, I would argue this is hate. In fact, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. And so to accept and encourage something not of God cannot be love. So what is love? Well, I think what I'll do to define love today is just read 1 Corinthians 13, the section of it, to give a bunch of what God says love is when played out as brothers and sisters in Christ. It says this, 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4. It says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so let's ensure that we are being loving in what we do to one another. Now, loving can both be comforting someone, but to love can also be very discomforting. So in other words, when you call out someone's sin, if you see someone in sin and you go up to them and you say as lovingly as possible, I think you're on the path to destruction, what you're doing is wrong, that can be a very uncomfortable moment. It's not how we would mostly view love. But it can be the most loving thing that you can do. And so we have to be both comforting when someone mourns that's loving but as I said, calling out sin, though it looks very different, is also a very loving thing to do. And one is not better than the other. Both are essential. And again, as in each command that we have looked at today, to be holy and to fear God and now to love, he reiterates the ground by saying that we love each other because of God's grace. He says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And again, we have the theme of the new birth given, and that being a sure thing. Once you've been given the new birth, it will not fail. This time, he takes the theme of being born again and shows that we haven't been born of a physical father this time, which will eventually die. No, the seed that we have been born of is the living and abiding word of God. And because the word is living and abiding, then we, we too are assured that our living hope is living and abiding. So that serves as motivation to love one another. And then he, he proves this in Isaiah 40. And in Isaiah 40, it says, when skipping a few lines, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of, of grass. So in other words, those born of a father and a mother. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And what he's showing is that our sure hope is absolutely sure because if the word of the Lord remains forever and we are born of the seed of the word of the Lord, then we too have a hope that is imperishable. And we too are to love one another no matter how hard that can be. And he finishes the section by showing that the word of the Lord is the gospel. And he says this, and this word, referring to Isaiah 40, 
is the good news that was preached to you. So we see that the word of the Lord Isaiah was looking forward to was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most loving thing that we can do for someone is to share the good news with them because it is the imperishable seed that leads to an imperishable living hope. So we are told that we will be, we will be known by our love for one another. And they will know you who are Christians by your love. So we have to look to how we conduct ourselves through one another. Are we patient with one another? Are we kind to one another? Or are we rude? Do we think the best of other people? Or are we always suspicious? What does this look like? Well, it looks like actually doing life together. It looks like speaking into each other as needed. If someone needs help, helping them. If someone is in sin, calling them out. It's helping those in need. As I said, it's showing patience to one another. Assuming the best of one another. It's rejoicing and not being jealous when someone is doing well. Remember that we're to be a rejoicing people with each other. And this should lead us to be a loving people. And so all throughout the text today, we have the gospel serving as the foundation for the commands given. And again, the commands were to be holy, to fear the Lord, and to love. Peter begins his letter by telling the Christians he is writing to who they are. They are born again to a living hope and are a rejoicing people. Today we find the outworking of that truth. We are called to be holy, we are called to fear the Lord, and we are called to love one another. A people who have been born again are a people that live in light of that truth because your hearts have been changed. We are no longer conformed by our passions of former ignorance, no. In fact, the Lord slowly changes our desires and our passions to more consistently have these characteristics of being holy, of fearing the Lord, and loving one another. This is the Christian life. But what we need to do is prepare our minds. We need to gird up our loins. We need to be sober-minded. And our job is to prepare to live a life that will honor Christ in all areas of life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the new birth, for the inheritance that is ours if we are truly born again. But we know, Lord, that it doesn't end there. That there is an outworking that proves the new birth. A life of holiness, a life of the fear of the Lord, a life of love. I pray for those that are born again today that we would increasingly, every day, learn to have these in abundance. For those that are here today that are not in Christ, I pray that you would give them this gift of the new birth. That they would learn holiness and the fear of the Lord and love in a true way in a way that can only be experienced uh, through regeneration in the new birth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.